Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD Plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that it's end-of-the-year review time, and We've had 20 million downloads, actually a little bit more than that right now, and it's not quite the end of the year as I'm recording this. If you look at the number of lifetimes that adds up to, Bulletproof Radio has now consumed 32 entire human lifetimes. That means that either we've done something that's really, really helpful, or we're basically a mass murderer. So given that the entire Bulletproof team has been working really hard on making these episodes better and better with better video on YouTube, better quality audio, we've upgraded our cameras, upgraded our lights, we've done all this stuff for you, I'm really hoping that it's better. Not just better quality, but that the guests are amazing. In fact, let's look at who the guests were this year. We had Dominic D'Agostino, Jim Quick, Dr. Dwight Jennings, Brendan Burchard, Dr. Joel Kahn, Dr. Robin Benson, Jeff Hayes, Stu Friedman. Abel James, James Baber, Tim Jackson, Rick Doblin, the guy from MAPS who does a lot of interesting drugs, Jen Whitman, Tom Altair, Mark Goodman, Rocco Despiritu, who actually teaches you how to cook your butt off literally, which is a great tagline, Wendy Myers, Dr. Tammy, Dan Party, David Wagnine, Jonathan Baylor, Dr. Salerno, Jaya, Yuri Elkame, Dr. Trevor Cates, Tim Ferris, Jamie Wheel, and Stephen Cutler from Flow Genome, the Short Alcohol Report, Kevin Kelly, Nick Ortner, Alberto Viotto, my friend and shaman from South America, John Gray, Gary Tobbs, Emily Fletcher, the guys from ARX, Jake Ducey, Dr. Daniel Amen, the amazing brain hacker who literally saved my career 13 years ago, even though I didn't meet him until a couple years ago. None other than Dr. Mercola, Max Lugaveri, Andrew Hills, Julie Holland, Robert McKee, Emily Morse of Sex with Emily, the second best name ever I've ever heard online. I don't remember what the first one was, but it's really up there. We also have Steve Wood, Dr. Ibrahim Karim, 
Jaya Jang, Stephanie Seneff, Ariane Resnick, Less Death Left Sin, which is the hardest name to say ever, but still a really cool interview. Garen Angel, Dr. Tariq Pereira, Rick Hansen, Peter Sage, Suzanne Summers, Suzanne Summers, Dr. Tom O'Brien, Nadine Artemis, Jeff Chilton, David Perlmutter. Wow, Perlmutter is a total major brain hacker. Love the guy. Summer Bach, Dan Burden, Gerard Mullen, Eli Block, Dana Walsh and Brent Martin, the live less line, more people. Isabella Wentz, who's the most awesome thyroid specialist ever. Amy Shaw, Anthony Mandel. Jackie Warner, Nir Eyal, Robert Cooper, Brenda Burchard again, Lisa Blomquist, Stephen Porges, best interview ever if you're really into hacking your vagal, your vagal nerve, Reed Davis, Jim Quick, amazing brain hacker, Evan Brand, Josh Davis, and this interview, well, not really interview, this whatever it is, year in review, what an amazing year. On top of that, Men's Fitness just named me the world's most famous biohacker, I was in the New York Times, uh, profiled. The Bulletproof Conference had 1,300 people attend, up 500 from last year. And what's happening here is we started a movement. And the movement is around people taking control of their biology. It's around biohacking, changing the environment around you so you have control of your body. I even got brand new Erlen lenses. If you saw the podcast with Helen Erlen or the talk she gave at the Bulletproof Conference, you know that one in two of you, people listening today, have certain colors that make you work really hard. So you can read, but it takes more energy than it normally should. Or you can sit in a room, but it takes more energy than it normally should. So I just became certified as an Erlen practitioner, so I can actually diagnose whether or not you have this, since one in two people have it. Also, Moldy came out this year. Moldy the documentary, where we interviewed a dozen top experts about toxic mold in the environment, and I've had a handful of really influential people, including those in the health community, come up and say, Dave, I was living with toxic mold in my house. Something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. I can't believe I missed this. Moldy made me think about it. That's remarkable. One of our own team, in fact, two of the senior team at Bulletproof had mold in their houses and weren't aware of it. And we were able to bring it to their attention and they cleaned it up and felt much better. And the founder of Sir Thrival, Daniel Vitalis, also was living in a moldy home. He saw moldy, we talked about it, he realized it, and went on his podcast and talked about what he did to get rid of it. Dr. Sarah Gottfried also just talked about mold in her house. So this is a big thing, and part of my mission at Bulletproof is to let people know, look, there's kryptonite all over the place. Some of it makes this person weak, some of it makes this person weak, some of it may make no one that you know weak, but I'm going to find the most likely culprits. I'll tell you about them so you can see if it matters to you. And this was, it was an amazing year. And in the meantime, for this episode, we've taken three of our most popular interviews from all of 2015, and we've boiled them down to just the core nuggets. So when you listen to this, you're going to get some amazing, amazing information in a very short period of time. Enjoy the special year-end wrap-up. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's interview 
is remarkable because if you're watching on YouTube, well, you might know that we're doing this in a place where I don't normally do it because there's no espresso machine and biohacking gear behind me. That's because we're at Brendan Burchard's studio. And today's guest is none other than Brendan. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Today's guest needs no introduction. He is none other than Dr. Joseph Mercola, founder of the number one natural health site on the internet, Mercola.com, with one and a half million subscribers. He's written three New York Times bestsellers, The Great Bird Flu Hoax, The No Grant Diet, and Effortless Healing. You've seen him on just about every major media outlet. And he's also kind of a tech guy, a computer hobbyist since the mid 80s with an interest in the internet that led him to create his website in 1997. Uh, Dr. Mercola, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you on. Well, thank you for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. Today's guest, I'm honored to have on the show. He's an award-winning science and health journalist, co-founder of the nonprofit and totally badass nutrition science initiative, author of one of my top books of all time in health and nutrition, which is called Good Calories, Bad Calories, as well as the easier to digest, uh, so to speak, book called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. None other than Gary Tobbs, the man himself. Gary, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dave. Nice to uh, be electronically here. Uh, you guys know that, that the art of biohacking is like changing the environment around you or inside you so that you have control of what happens in, in your body and, and thus in your life. And there's a set of things, you know, you're taking your vitamins or getting enough sleep. And you and I have like had some offline discussions, like comparing our vitamin baggies and stuff. So like, I I know that you take care of your hardware with the same degree of precision that that I take care of mine. Um, So let's assume that if you're listening, that you're you're doing some things there and there's probably more you can do there. But all right, so now your hardware is working. But then there's like the software thing. And that's actually more work. Mm-hmm. Than getting because anyone can like take some pills and exercise and and eat the right foods and like do the things that are gonna make you know your cells do their thing right and for some people it's more work than others but all right then you're there and now you're faced with the next big thing which is, is self doubt mm. so in the book or just in your experience like what does someone who's all right I've got enough energy now I've got enough health and I want to do something that I haven't done before yeah. and then there's a process that happens in their mind and you write about this in your book but. but Walk me through that. Yeah. What what happens with self doubt, and then what's the counter move to that, so you can upgrade the software as well as the hardware? Yeah, well, I, lo- I love all you said, especially. And I think of, when I think of biohacking and everything that you teach and everything that you do, try to do that if you don't have sustained motivation. Like, just try. <laughs> Tr- try to stay on a diet plan. Try yeah. to try to have a great career. Try to lead your team. Try to do something significant. And I, I think, unfortunately, right now, when you talk about software, people sometimes go. Oh, motivation, and they kind of poo-poo the topic. And it's like, no, that's the one thing. I mean, it's easy. I mean, because Chris Farley made fun of motivation, right? So we all learned to laugh <laughs> right, a little right. bit about the guy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but at the same time, without it, that's the problem. Most people say, well, it is self-doubt or it is fear that wrecks people's lives. So I open up one of the conversations in the book of, of saying, it's usually not fear. We conveniently, as a culture, blame fear. Actually, if you go back and you read philosophers of time, you, you don't see as much conversation, oh, it's always fear, and they're always blaming fear. They're usually blaming self-reliance and personal responsibility and habit and discipline. It's uh, only a modern era thing that it's all, we all conveniently say fear is the number one thing. And by the way, fear is a big dog, and we take that on in the book, and we'll talk about that in relation to self-doubt. But the real problem most people have 
is sustained motivation. I, I would totally agree with sustained motivation. If you yeah. have sustained motivation, you'll overcome the fear. Yeah. That's the solve. Because you, you keep trying. Yeah. But, but if you're just, you know, I, I, I don't have any more, um, any more ability to bring it. Yeah. Uh, then, all right, I, you give up. Yeah. So, so you're saying it's the lack of motivation, or I would interpret that as lack of energy, because energy powers motivation. Right, right. And so then you, you hit the wall, and you're like, I'm, I'm done. I'm yeah. not, not going to face that. Whether it was facing a fear or a challenge, it's right. semantics, right? Totally. And I think in terms of the self-doubt and, like, what do we do with it? Because I like to give tactical things for people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, a lot of people have a lot of self-doubt because they lack clarity and competence. Yep. Right, and so they don't have the confidence. In psychology, we often talk about the competence-confidence loop. Mm-hmm. Right, the more you kind of understand something and master it, the more you have confidence in it. The more you have confidence in it, the more you push the edge. Where you'll discover and learn more, and so you have this great infinity between the two. The more confidence, usually confidence. But that first piece of clarity is where people really struggle with self-doubt. So they say, "Why well, don't you know?" It's not that they hate themselves, they just often don't know themselves, okay. or they're not being intentional during the day. One of my favorite activities, simple takeaway, I was teaching at our last High Performance Academy, we had Ariana Huffington, she came backstage, mm-hmm. she's like, what are like, some tactical things you do? I said, let me show you my favorite thing of all time. So give me your phone, pull up her phone. I said, let's put three words in here as an alarm that go off three times, they go off throughout the day, this set of three words that remind you of your highest, best self. Wow. So I tell people, just find, what are three words that would describe your highest, best self? Even if you're not there now, they could be aspirational, so, right? So if next time I see Ariana, like, I'm gonna ask her what her three words are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are. She's gonna tell me? I would love that if All she right, did. I'm gonna ask did. her, all right. <laughs> well, because here's what it, what it does is, and I, I've done this for years, you can, just like you biohack your life with some technology and tools, you can biohack your mind. A simple reminder going off three times a day of who you are mm-hmm. and stating the aspirational can help you overcome self-doubt because a lot of self-doubt is just you haven't connected with who you are. You, and you haven't done the time, you haven't spent the time. You just haven't mm-hmm. said, what do I want to be about today? And driven your life intentionally that day. And with more intention throughout the day to be who we want to be through our beliefs and our behaviors, we start to find more confidence in self. What changes have you had in your personal health or your personal performance? over the past you know, number of years that you've been doing this? Like, what, what have you done to yourself um, that, that really has changed things for you? Well, it's, you know, it's, life is a journey, and, uh, and health is a journey, too. And you know, I'm always learning new things. So it probably is best to work backwards because it's kind of hard to remember all of them. But it's, you know, I've, I've learned so much from having the opportunity to interview some really incredible people and, and some novel ideas. But the most recent one, probably was um, not sitting down. <laughs> I've been an athlete most of my life. I started exercising in 1968 and even, even ran a 250 marathon. And if I ran that a century ago, it would have been a world record, but I ran mine in, in the early 80s. Uh, so uh, I thought I was in good shape, but you know, after I stopped, was transitioned to full-time editor on the newsletter, I was doing a lot more sitting than when I was seeing patients. So I had this progressively increasing back pain that troubled me quite a bit. And I was seeing uh, a number of different chiropractors, really incredibly good chiropractors, and different stretches and strengthening exercises, inversion tables, lasers, uh, 
infrared saunas, uh, you name it. I did, did dozens and dozens of different strategies, and yet the pain persisted, never got better until I finally learned about sitting down and not the, the importance the importance of not sitting down. And I learned that from Dr. Vernikos initially, who was a, one of the scientists that, that was responsible for taking care of the astronaut's health. And she, I did, she just helped me understand the importance of not sitting, but I would always do is still sit down and stand up every 10 to 15 minutes. And that didn't work. I tried that for six months to a year until I interviewed Dr. Levine, who is one of the leading their researchers in this area out of the Mayo Clinic. And he convinced me just to stand up. So I did that, basically eliminated almost all of my sitting. I sit for less than 30 minutes a day, typically. And uh, my back pain has never returned unless I'm forced to sit for prolonged periods, like on a plane or a long car ride. How do you handle critics now? I mean, there are still some people out there who say, it's all about calories. You, you lock someone in a sealed chamber and I can prove it's all about calories. Uh, despite, you know, I'm going to throw out all of these 57 corner cases where it's not about calories because I want it to be about calories. But um, uh, so when you get those kind of critics, uh, how does it make you feel? And then how do you choose to respond? Well, you know, it's um, I've been accused of always responding to people by saying you're missing the point. Right. And unfortunately, what I think is they're missing the point. And so I want to say, look, you're missing the point when you do, you know, you put somebody in a lock them in a room and you restrict their calories. You're uh, missing the effect on hunger or you're missing the uh, the fact that, uh, you know, when you're cutting the calories, you're also cutting the carbohydrates. or You're also working to reduce insulin levels in a kind of artificial environment. Um, there's a fundamental issue with all this kind of science where whenever you have these kinds of competing paradigms, almost invariably every piece of ops, every piece of data, every piece of evidence could be interpreted from the perspective of either paradigm. And then the key is you have to make some decisions yourself about what you find important and what, uh, you know, what studies you think weren't unambiguous enough to be ignored. When I give my lecture on this called Why We Get Fat, one of the things I like about the lecture is I never mention any research. I mean, I actually, <laughs> there's no randomized controlled trials or observations. I'm just making an argument yeah. from, uh, you know, various observations that this idea that it's about calories is meaningless and can't explain anything. It's, it's descriptive, not explanatory. And when the people criticize me, I kind of wish they would, you know, these lectures, there's probably 10, 15 <laughs> versions of this lecture available online mm -hmm. from different universities or groups that have recorded. And I wish they'd just go through and basically say, okay, well, here Taub says, you know, what about the genetics of obesity? Is that, uh, are the genes involved with obesity determining how much we eat and exercise? Or are they determining whether we partition fuel to energy or fat storage? And then go through each one and, and rebut it or refute it, but they never, you know, the critics I've seen never tend to do that. And so I'm left with an argument that they're not responding to, and instead you get these kind of uh, straw man arguments that you describe. Yeah. Um, how do you find out who you are in order to then... I tell people, do that. Don't find it. Don't okay. try to find it. It's like, mm -hmm. I, you don't find your purpose in life either. You walk out the door one day and, you know, the piano of purpose falls on your head and you're like, oh, I found it. I found it. It just hit me in the head. It doesn't the, the work like that. The piano of purpose? No, I said, D don't find out who you are. Decide yeah. who you are. Okay, so, so and you, this, you, you uh, have control of that and you decide. All right. You, yeah, and that's mm -hmm. what these three words and this activity of just, it's so simple, but as you know, if you're not intentional about your food each day, 
you're gonna end up fat, slovenly, and just destroyed. It's true. Because that's what, the society will just push you to convenience and ease and speed, and you'll take it, and you'll consume too much. Yeah, fast food The same food thing the happens time. intellectually and psychologically for us, right? The world says, no, just go, you know, go with difficult, just be easy, you know? And so a lot of people just show up in environments and they have no presence or intention at all. And the less presence and the less intention you have, the more self-doubt. But once you have presence and intention, and it's something you choose to have, let me give you an example. If this sounds too esoteric for people, because sometimes, yeah, yeah, what is this kid Brendan talking about, you know? Um, the Dalai Lama, his intention, and I've, I've been blessed to meet him twice, and his intention is so obvious. It's so obvious. Yeah. His intention is kindness and compassion and happiness. Those are his three words. I got to ask. Nice. He's going to make those happen in the environment he's in. That is why he is such an unbelievably kind, compassionate, and happy guy. Because he decided he was going to be that and stand for that. Not just for himself, for other people. I think another level of self-doubt is like knocked away when we decide to serve. Yes. When we say, like you've done, I'm going to be a role model for people. Now, when I say that, or someone listening, because I'm like, well, that's an egoic thing to say. Yeah. No. It might be one of the most profound things you ever give yourself the gift of, is to say, what would it be required of me to be my best self? What would my best self look like, feel like, sense like? And then to demonstrate that to the world, not only is that just an absolute exemplary like personification of personal power, mm -hmm. it is service to other people. The and, world needs yeah. people who aren't so, look, there are so many people wandering around who are completely lost or self-doubt. And I don't make fun of that. My, my whole mission in my life has been to help that. But we've, the first thing has to happen, we've got to get the intention for them to live into their best self. So this ties into things like, like leadership and the idea that someone who's not officially the boss but can still be a leader because they walk in and they exemplify something and like kindness is, is a great one. Right. But there's, there's strength and, and there's power and motivation and, and all these things. Can I make but, a simple yeah. um, uh, clarity piece that, that will really help a lot of people is, uh, I, I talk a lot about the baseline human drives and what really drives us. And one drive that we all have is congruence. Mm -hmm. We want to be congruent with who we think we are and how we're demonstrating ourselves to the world. So basic, but a lot of people, when we're really struggling with self-doubt, it's because we know that in, there's something inside that's rattling around. We got a little lion in us, but we're living as mice. It, it seems like you've, over the, over the years, you've definitely added intermittent fasting and maybe you've increased the amount of fat in your, in, mm -hmm. in your recommendations. What led you to increase fat in the nutritional stuff that you write about? Well, you don't really have much of an option. You know, and, uh, I'm a big fan of Dr. Ron Rosedale, yeah. who was one of my early mentors. Uh, he really is the person who first made me aware of the importance of insulin resistance in 1995. So 20 years ago, I was in a meeting with him in Chicago. It was like maybe 20 of us in the room it was a small natural medicine meeting. And he went on for three hours about diabetes and insulin resistance. And it was a new topic to me, but it's really, even now, 20 years later, the central core of my understanding of why most people get sick is because they have insulin resistance, it's pervasive. So in order to address that, you don't, you know, you have to lower your carbohydrates and then pro, too much protein is a problem because that yeah. also increases insulin. Uh, then you're really left with fat, and then you just have to differentiate the types of fat to healthy fats. So you know, I, at one time I was eating 70, 80 percent fat, but now that I'm not insulin 
resist it. And I, my body fat is almost is a pretty much ideal, about eleven percent or so. Uh, that I, uh, you know, I, I probably have a lot more fruit now than I typically do, and some grains. So maybe forty percent fat or something, somewhere around there. Grains, but no wheat and no gluten. I'm assuming. No wheat. No, I like quinoa. Okay. Some rice. Quinoa and rice. It's that willingness to to take a, a non-risk. To, to look at something like that versus, no, nah, I found some studies that refuted that. So it, therefore, basically, everything's a lie. Well, this is, you know, I make this point in Good Calories, Bad Calories, where I have a chapter that, you know, the people who treat obesity and the obese subjects are the ones who have the best experience in knowing what works for them. So if you've been obese your whole life, you've been fighting it your whole life, you've yeah. been trying, you know, as you did, you go on diets, you're hungry all the time. Um, lo and behold, you switch and you get rid of the carbs and add fat in place and suddenly you lose weight effortlessly. I mean, this is something that certainly happens to a lot of people. We don't know what proportion. Mm-hmm. As soon as you do that, it's as though you've lost credibility to the research community. <laughs> I actually had interviews when I was doing good calories, bad calories. I remember one in particular with a uh, very famous professor at the University of Texas, who will go unnamed at the moment, whose research actually implicated insulin and heart disease. And he was one of the rare people who thought that insulin is a causal agent in heart disease. And so the argument would be you should reduce insulin. And if you reduce insulin, you'll have less heart disease, less diabetes, and you'll be leaner. And I finally, he never pushed it to the leaner part of it. And I finally said to him while we were doing the interview, well, you know, insulin also drives fat accumulation on a day-to-day or at least minute-to-minute level. And it's likely it does it on a chronic level. And so they are, you know, what about if you actually lower insulin levels? Um, and he said, well, those kind of studies have never been done. I said, well, actually, they, they have been in the Atkins <laughs> diet trials. There's about five of them that have been published recently. And he said, now, nah, the Atkins diet works because people eat less on it. You know, that diet's kind of nauseating, and, and the people don't like to eat. And, and now I want to say to him, well, I, I tried it as an experiment. I was one of these people who was actually foolish enough to try it. And as soon as I said that, his response was, oh, you're one of those Atkins diet people. Like, I had just exposed myself <laughs> as a cult member because I was willing to try the diet as an experiment. And I said, well, you know, I tried it as it was prompted by the an economist at MIT, which is a true story, and we were discussing fat, and he said that if you're going to write an article about dietary fat, as I was doing for science at the time, you should try the Atkins diet. So I gave it a context that might make him take it more seriously, but basically as soon as I had mentioned the word Atkins, mentioned that I had tried the diet, let alone that I was still mostly following it, I had become somebody that no longer had credibility to them. And this is yeah, one of the interesting things in the field is that even the clinicians who treat obesity, so the American Bariatric Society, they're full of people who believe that the only way to do it is to get people off carbohydrates. Um, but they don't get a lot of credibility because they're people who treat obese people. Obese people are gluttons and sloths. Nobody stays on diets. There's a whole series of kind of uh, thought constructs that this the convent the, the establishment has created to protect themselves from the simple fact that when people go on these diets they feel better, they they lose a lot of weight, their metabolic risk factors improve, their heart disease, diabetes risk factors improve, and it's an endless struggle to say just look at the evidence, put your yes. preconceptions aside and do what you know I was naive enough to do because I had no preconceptions. Look at the evidence. Feel bad if you did something else. So feeling yeah. bad is not necessarily a negative thing. It's a negative thing when it takes over us yes. and it endures. And so let me t- teach you that trick from High Performance Academy. It's called RWID, relative weight 
of importance and duration. It's the secret to tell whether or not somebody is healthy psychologically when dealing with negative emotion. Mm -hmm. If we have a negative emotion and we give that emotion during the day a high relative weight of importance and we keep holding it and duration, we keep our focus on it over a period of time, meaning we, we sense it incredibly intensely but we keep sensing it, we keep focusing on it, we keep paying attention to it, we don't let it go, and now it starts derailing our further beliefs, behaviors, ambitions, goals. That's not healthy. Yep. But knowing that also gives us power too because we can choose to have an emotion, to create the thoughts in our mind to have an emotion, uh, even like confidence. And we can say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to feel confident. How would I stand, move, talk, breathe, project, if I was a little more confident, just not Mr. Confident, just yeah. a little more. What would that be like? What would that feel like? And we decided to try that a couple times and we made confidence something, you know, that needs to be important to me. And I'm gonna focus on that over a period of time. Every single day, I'm gonna find the, my marks where I'm gonna be a little more confident than I usually would. Just try. Trying that over a period of time develops the skill. And I think what happens for people who are also miserable, who endure suffering, and we know this from Buddhism as well, I know you studied as much as I have, is this idea that a lot of suffering comes from attachment. Yeah. That's RWID. The, the weight and the attachment, the endurance, the duration of the focus on that thing becomes the attachment which becomes negative. Yeah, so it, it, you feel it and you let it go, that's a win. You yeah. feel it and you, you identify with it, you become it and you let it ruin your day, that's not a win. Right. 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 This this year, when I'm home, all of the beef that I eat actually um, ate the grass from the front part of my property. So we're raising the grass, but not the cows yet. And it just it makes a difference in how you feel and how your kids perform, how your brain performs. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, ideally, you know, one of my passions is regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. uh, because the, some of the projections are that within the next 60 years, we're going to lose most of the topsoil on the planet. Yeah. Uh, and will not be able to sustain the human race. So it's it's a relatively urgent need. It's not you know, 60 years away, but it's not that far. So, uh, but what I, what I learned is that integrating animals into the process is a really powerful way to do that. And some of the help, the best soil ever developed on earth, supposedly is in the American Great Plains when they had all these herbivores, these buffaloes that were depositing their, their waste and trampling it in and having these cocktail cover crops growing up that, further the amount of organic content carbon that can integrate into the soil. Well, let's talk about glyphosate or Roundup. Is it, it's, sure. an, it's an antibiotic. It kills bacteria. When you spray it on that healthy soil, what happens to the soil? Well, a number of things. It chelates out the minerals. It's also a thing. It's, it's originally patented as a chelator and an antibiotic. The reason it works as an antibiotic is it takes away the minerals. Uh, like zinc and manganese are two of the most, most potent ones. But uh, it is bad news. It really devastates the, you know, if you put glyphosate or Roundup, Roundup is actually much more toxic. Some of the studies show it might be 100, 200 times more toxic than glyphosate because the surfactants in Roundup make it much worse. It totally oh. disrupts cell, cell membranes, mitochondria. It's bad news. So if you put it in sterile soil, guess what? It doesn't work. That's not its mechanism of action. The way it works wow. is through the soil microbes. And then they cause diseases uh, to the plant that, that basically cripple it because its immune system is severely compromised. And it's really devastating. It's, it's, it just Because not only is it the issue with GMO crops and the Roundup that they're spraying on it, but they're actually spraying it on 
non-GMO crops. You know, like wheat, like who doesn't eat wheat? Like virtually very few people. So they use it to dry it and it's just as damn dangerous once it gets in there because it's integrated into every single cell of the plant. They use it to kill the wheat and then dries it, dry it out. And it's, you know, you cannot wash this stuff off. So you eat, the average American, how much glyphosate or Roundup do you think the average American is eating every year? You know, I've never quantified it, but it's got to be a, a ridiculous amount because if it's sprayed on a crop, you eat the crop. It's their stuff. body weight, about no 150 way. pounds every year. How can that not, be? They're not eating that much glyphosate. They're eating that much food sprayed oh, okay. with glyphosate and integrated yeah. into cells. I, I, I'm sorry. That. Okay. <laughs> But, but it, they're spraying a bill, basically a billion pounds of this stuff every year. So it is dangerous as can be. It's just, it, it's absolutely ridiculous if they're getting away with the sham. And so when you say fat or even saturated fat, like butyric acid, you know, 5% of butter that gives it that sort of buttery thing and also makes your feet smell bad, it has a profoundly different effect on brain inflammation than, say, palmitic acid, another saturated fat. So even when we get to saturated fat, it's like, well, which saturated fat? And did you fry the crap out of it before you ate it? Because that variable probably matters. Uh, and, and then you end up getting to this, oh, no, I'm paralyzed by the requirements for perfection in the study. And we can only eat palm oil blessed by monks and stored hermetically. <laughs> um, how are we going to get around those levels of things, which really seem to matter? Well, they could matter. Again, it's funny because this is, was a lacuna in my research. And one thing I get criticized for is people say, we didn't pay any attention to vegetable oils. So one of the things I was doing in my books was the, one of the key observations is, is this observation, diseases of Western diets and lifestyles. So when you, you start off with these traditional populations all over the world, indigenous peoples eating their traditional diets, and they made a host of things that kill them, but what doesn't kill them is heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes. Uh, they don't seem to get arthritis. They don't get can Again, cancer was a, a common observation in all these studies. And this was from like the 1880s to... Well, you could follow it through to the, to the dawn of the 21st century in some populations. So the question I was asking was, what causes those diseases that appear, this cluster of metabolic diseases? And they appear in those populations when they start eating Western diets. And when most of those populations, it's sugar and white flour. So that's what I focused on. Um, you'd see these diseases begin to appear before there are any vegetable oils of any quantity, if at all, in these diets. Um, but it doesn't mean these vegetable oils are harmless. It also, but it does mean that you can get obesity, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, without them. And that's kind of the issue I'm trying to, so the, the issues that I'd like to see our research settle is, is obesity caused merely by eating too much, in which case, no matter how you phrase it, it turns out to be some variant on a gluttony or sloth disorder, yeah. which I think is horribly naive and uh, intolerably cruel to the yes, population. Yes, as a formerly fat guy, <laughs> yeah. yes, it's cruel and it's not true. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, you know, this yeah. idea, especially with obese children, they're, they're, they're tortured by their obese condition, they're tormented by their peers for being obese, and then the medical community tries to get their parents to starve them on top <sighs> of this, when we know that starvation is one of the, you know, the, the, should, if it's not one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I think it might be, famine is. Yeah. Okay, so we got that settled. We're, we're, <laughs> we're it's, okay, I can't even go into it without babbling. 
I'd like to settle that issue. I think that issue can be settled. Is it a hormonal regulatory disorder? And if it is, it's probably, I'd say, almost assuredly triggered by the kind of carbohydrates we eat. The vegetable oils might play a role, yeah. and I'm not saying they don't. And then the other issue is if we can get people off this dietary fat obsession and get the research community paying attention to the right variables, then they'll do their job. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll learn the truth. The problem is up until now, they've embraced these preconceptions. They've thought they've been based on sound evidence when if you actually do the exercise of looking to see if they are, you find they're not. And those are the kind of things that I would like to focus on. So, so let's say someone listening, and there's a lot of Bulletproof listeners um, listening to this now who are pretty successful already. Yeah. Like, like they're feeling pretty good. But I, I get these phone calls and, and emails from people. And they're like, you know, I, I've had a great career um, but I, I, they're not feeling congruence, the thing we talked about a little yeah. bit earlier, right? And a lot of people, especially, you know, I'm, I'm slightly over 40, just turned 42, and guys 10 years older than me, like, like you tell them, you should, like, see a psychologist, and they're like, like, I'm not a wuss. Like, 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 like there's, <laughs> no. it's, not, it's not manly. Oh, really? Right, right? Yeah. like, it, it's not acceptable. It's an admission of weakness yeah. to do that. So what's your answer to people who are like, well, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, like I, I'm not going to admit that, that a desire for improvement is something wrong with me, or I'm not going to yeah. see it that way. Have well, you- first, I don't agree. I think, I think the best, if you've been struggling with any emotion, or you've been struggling with momentum in your life for a period of years and years and years, that is proof evidence you need to talk to somebody and ask for help. <laughs> it just is true. Yeah. If, it's been, if it's gone on, mm-hmm. you can't handle on yourself and don't fool yourself you can. You need to get some help. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I think everybody yeah. should do it. It's fascinating. Marcus Aurelius said, you know, one of the most powerful things a man can do is explore his own emotions and learn to understand them with the help of someone else. Like yeah. this is powerful stuff, right? Um, this is the guy who I think is one of the most manliest men of all time maybe. So I think that's pretty powerful. I think the other part about it is and this will be hard, but I do this with a lot of CEOs we work with. It's not comfortable for them when I say this. I say, do you feel like other people understand you? Mm-hmm. And most people, yeah, yeah. I said, no, really. Do you think your team really understands how hard you work? And they'll go. I mean, do people really know the responsibilities on your shoulder? I'll start asking them. Yeah. And sure enough, they start to say, no. And over a period of time, what I always find, especially at high performers, I mean, the top level guys, I mean, Fortune 50 guys I coach, right, who are like just up there. Here's what often they, they get in a place psychologically in their life at some point where they go, they don't understand me. They don't understand me. And that is the most dangerous place to be in the world. Sounds like a 16-year-old. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and here's what ends up happening. Here's where that's actually, it's, what, the trick is, that it's, what, it, the amazing thing is the actual, I think my perspective of it anyway, is that when someone says they don't understand me, that's called the caged life. You take a wild, ferocious, free, powerful animal, throw them in a zoo, put them in the cage, watch what happens. They're ferocious, they're mean, they're activated, they're aggressive for a period of time, and then they end up becoming resigned. They go to the back of the cage, they kind of huddle down, they look at everybody walking by, and they just there's this look of aggression, but there's resignation there. They've just sat back, they've given up, they're frustrated, they're, you know, they're there. This happens for a lot of executives. They get more and more successful, more and more responsibility, bigger and bigger team, more and more money, and they start to say, people don't understand how hard it is for me. Oh, look at them judging me because of my money, fame, wealth, influence, power. And they just start becoming resigned. Wow. They become frustrated. And from a place of resignation, there's oh, that gorilla in the cage has no motivation. It won't eat. Wow. And so when a powerful man 
has lost, or a powerful executive, doesn't matter. I'm yeah. using the, the we, we were Human, talking about a man yeah. earlier, but a powerful person is in a place in which they don't feel a lot of motivation. It's because they became resigned and they started saying, they don't understand me. And guess what that is? Ego. Yeah, there you go. I work, like, there's something about, oh, this cucumber grew in my backyard and I'm eating it for dinner. Like, it, it may synchronize you with your biome. There's, there's talk about communication between soil microbes and the, the microbes in your stomach. And maybe there's benefits to having the soil microbes from your backyard talk to the things in your stomach to tell you, tell your system about what's going on in the environment. There's just stuff we don't know, but you feel better when you eat this. No question. You know, you asked early on one of the other things I was doing, and uh, I think it was like five years ago now, we connected with, I had dinner with uh, Dr. Natasha McCampbell McBride. Yeah, yeah. And she is a neurologist who has a child, a son with autism and got passionate about this and now does that full time. But she's really known for the GAPS diet, which is gut, gut mm-hmm. associated psychology syndrome. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the basic strategy there is, is ultimately to use fermented food. She has a lot of bone broths for a transitional diet that she has puts people on. But ultimately, people wind up on the fermented foods to optimize your gut. So I started doing that once after I had dinner with her and, you know, basically realized uh, that these bacteria are making a lot of good things. Not only are you getting the volume of the beneficial microbes, uh, uh, but I said, well, how many are we getting? You know, because we sell a really good high potency probiotic with incredible strains, one of the best on the market. But that, uh, uh, that I think one or two capsules is a hundred billion, which is pretty high potency. So I said, well, if I'm eating the fermented vegetables, how many are in there? So we did the analysis. It was like 10 trillion. It was more than a whole bottle of our probiotics and just in two or three ounces of the fermented vegetables. So I said, well, this is good. I don't need to take any more probiotics. And then I said, well, let's make this better because one of the the important nutrients that most people don't get enough of, I mean, almost everyone seeing this video is deficient in this, is vitamin K2. Yes. I was one of the guys who really heavily promoted the use of vitamin D. Uh, Probably that was the main catalyst to get it implemented and adopted in the United States. I didn't invent it or anything, of course, but I just popularized it. You and Dr. Kennel. Endlessly persistent with it. Yeah. And I'm grateful that people have adopted it, but vitamin D doesn't work. It works in conjunction with K2 and it is massively important for increasing your bone density, but more important, reducing cardiovascular disease because it sucks out the calcium from the lining of the blood vessel and puts it back into the bone. And you can have the best vitamin D levels in the world and it's not going to do that. It's not designed to work that way. It needs to work with K2. So where do you get K2? It's fermented foods. The highest source in the world is natto, which is produced by a, a species of bacteria called Bacillus subtilis. And so I said, if, well, let's see if we can do something. So we changed, we played, we had the starter culture that I made my fermented foods with. We changed and played with it. We got to the point where it's making four or 500 micrograms of vitamin K2. Wow. And typically a vitamin K2 supplement is about a 200 micrograms. And it's, it's pricey. It's a dollar, $2 yeah. a pill. So you could, you could ferment your own food with this specific starter culture. We have, we developed one called kinetic starter culture and it makes you, you, you get vitamin K2 for free and you get 10 trillion bacteria. It's like, do you, sell you that? have to spend like $50 of supplements every day to equal that. And it's just, and it's real food. Is that something you sell? 
Yeah, yeah, with the kinetic culture, but you got to make the vegetables yourself. That is, that is so interesting. One of my yeah. biggest complaints about fermented food, Dr. Mercola, has been that you don't know what it is because most people just dump their cabbage in a bucket and then they don't control temperature, they don't control time, and they don't know what their starter culture is. So they're getting histamine, they're getting species. Well, a lot of people species. make wild fermentation. Yeah. And- Rather than getting a week, it takes three weeks to do it, and you're and it's an experiment, you know. Yeah, wild fermentation, I think, can be dangerous because of what we just talked about, where things like um, the spraying of the soil changes the toxicity of the fungus. So then, all of a sudden, you get yeast out there, and what's happening? Whatever that yeast is making, maybe is good for you, maybe it isn't, but you just don't know. It, right. It's kind of a fermentation roulette, from my perspective. So, but like you said, these are all hypothesized, and there's some evidence that these might be true. And I found like eight reasons why only fat with polyphenols in the morning could do interesting things to your biochemistry. But knowing which one or combination of those is doing it, I don't know. But I do know that I can cause a repeatable effect with this little biohack. And Well, that's why so yeah. much of this is about self-experimentation, yeah. right? like we lay out what we think are the basic rules of the system and then within those rules there's a lot of there's a lot of individual variation a lot of phenotypes have been triggered and then we all begin playing with the various uh the the variables involved the types of fat the amount of fat the timing of the eating you know are we going to intermittently fast or we use it almost an infinite variety of things we can manipulate to see how they affect us personally one thing I always said about diet studies is if you're obese, you don't need a randomized controlled trial to tell you if a diet works. <laughs> you go on the diet and you're suddenly 40 pounds lighter, which is a common phenomenon. That diet worked for you. Yeah, what and- you need to know now is long-term effects. You know, For instance, you could starve yourself. You lose 40 pounds. Can you keep it up? Or is it, have you fixed, by the starvation, have you fixed this metabolic disruption that caused the obesity to begin with? And then is, are you going to live longer? Um, yeah. There's a lot of things we do that make us feel better. Like I have terrible tinnitus, which is a technical term for what lay people call tinnitus. And I try to pronounce it correctly, and then people don't know what you're talking about. So tinnitus is earring. And, yeah. uh, you know, it sounds like I have a, sometimes a hive of bees in my head. makes it difficult to think. Um, could be that I had too many concussions as a youth, could be a genetic thing, could just be bad luck. I also worked in a lot of, I bounced in rock clubs through college and, and graduate school. There's a lot of reasons why I could have this. It's annoying. I will do anything to make it feel better. So I will take massive doses of ginkgo biloba. If it suppresses the tinnitus, I'm happy to have that symptom suppressed. I don't know if the ginkgo is going to kill me in 10 years or 20 years, at which point people blame it on my high fat diet, but it could be the ginkgo. <laughs> But it's a trade-off you're willing to make. So you could always, if you have a symptom, you do the experiment, you see if you feel better, and then you make some kind of trade-off between, it's naive to think it's not going to have long-term yeah. consequences, or you're not going to be in the situation like I could be in where the tinnitus comes back, but I'm already taking massive doses of ginkgo, and if I give up the ginkgo, it would be even worse. You never know. But if you got a symptom, you can experiment and see what happens. Because I think breath is, our, our breath is creating our emotional reality. And that's not a, a philosophical guess. We can prove it by science, right? That your oxygenation, how much breath you're taking in can, as, as everyone knows, you can hold your breath right now, your body will freak out. Yeah. Right. But you can also super oxygenate it and your body will freak out. Then there's mm-hmm. a balance for you that you need to know about your performance. And so that every time you get up, 
what I tell people often do is just close your eyes, bounce in place, take 10 deep breaths. Mm -hmm. So you got up that, that, you know, 75 minutes, 90 minutes, you get up, go get that water, come back, maybe stretch, and then just close your eyes, bounce in place, take 10 deep breaths, repeat your three words about who you want to be and why, sit down, go back to work. Everyone can do that because it only takes, you know, it's a very quick break. It'd be a two minute break. Mm -hmm. But doing that gives me the mental edge to be refreshed constantly throughout the day. The, the two big meditations completely release me from stuff. And then I find myself clean and recharged. That is an awesome answer. And, and this is the kind of stuff that I want you guys to get on Bulletproof Radio, actionable stuff. So now we're, we're coming up on the end of the show. And there's uh, one question that I've asked everyone on the show, and I think your answers might be different than anyone else after a couple hundred episodes. And it's given everything you know from your work and just from your life, if someone came to you today and said, like, I want to perform better at, at anything, what are your top three recommendations? Like, if you want to kick more ass, do these three things. Perform better at anything. Yeah, whatever you're here to do. So some people are moms, some people are dads, sure. some people are entrepreneurs, some people play soccer, yeah, whatever so you love. Well, clearly, based on my the core of my understanding of how to optimize your health is to not be insulin resistant. Okay. So take do whatever it takes to not be insulin resistant. Typically, if you are, that's going to be intermittent fasting, and, and you know, and all the principles we've talked about are alluded to in this conversation, which is you know healthy fats and minimizing the grains, the fruits, all of that. So, you know, be insulin and leptin resistant because it's it's yeah. cousin. It's actually even more important, but you know, it's easier to measure insulin. Um, I think a hidden one that I ignored for many, many years and have come to fully, more fully appreciate is sleep. Uh, and make sure you're sleeping eight hours. It sounds simple and stupid. And your parents probably told you about it all, you know, for years, but you know, you, for somehow most of us think that we're exceptions, especially if you're hard driving, you've got a lot of stuff to do and no time left to do. And you've got a family, so you compromise your sleep. So make sure you're getting eight hours of sleep would be a huge, uh, and, and I think really, well, three is hard. You know, <laughs> one of the things is I focus on is, is, is your fluid intake. And, you know, from my perspective is to optimize your water. And there's a lot of ways to do that. We didn't talk about them, but structured water is massively important. Uh, making sure you're structuring it with the specific types of minerals. Uh, structured water is sort of energetic, energized water. So water inside of cells is the water that you get if you, take a fruit and squeeze the juice out of it or, or a vegetable and you have vegetable juices, all that water is structured. Vegetable does it or the, the plant does it for you. But you could, there are mechanical devices that will structure it for you too. And then um, you can also have water with hot, that's high in hydrogen gas, which is a whole topic for the, it would take about an hour to explain, but that's a, it's sort of what happens in our gut. This is the production of hydrogen gas. So that's kind of all related to the water intake. So if you're drinking hot, healthy water, you're not drinking soda or Gatorade or you know these other power drinks uh, that people tend like Red Bull or something that people oh, yeah. have to stay healthy. The, the stay opposite healthy. of structured water, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and then uh, what's this? It's, uh, did I get three? I that I was three. It. You had insulin resistance, yeah. um, structured water, and sleep. So this is a basic, but there's so many more that you could talk about, you know, like passion and, and Let, let's joy. do, let's do three more. Like if you'll be the only guy to get a bonus three, because you spent your life doing this stuff, what would your next three be? What we talked about is just to be passionate yeah. because that will drive you. And Elon's the classic example there. So if you're just 
truly, authentically, not academically, intellectually, but at your core, just passionate about something, you're going to be successful at whatever it is, as long as it's your true, authentic passion. Yeah. So that's key. And it's sort of an artifact of that is to be joyful uh, as part of that process. And it's, and it's sort of a, a secondary effect from sleep is, is meditation, which I think is another powerful discipline that certainly a lot of people appreciate and do, but many people fail to implement. So I've been playing with that for the, the last year and able to meditate for about 30 minutes a day. And I use a technology that is actually able to monitor my brain waves. They can tell me what levels of meditation. Uh, you and me both. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's what I do. And, uh, love, you know, I mean, I mean, it's the ultimate core in driving, you know, so in your relationships, ideally your spouse, uh, or your children, your parents, you know, and your, your uh, relatives and friends. So, you know, I think that's the key. Awesome. Well, Dr. Mercola, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio today. I, I really appreciate it. Given all the stuff you know, uh, both from your, your hardcore physics background, nutritional research, and everything else, just life, your top three recommendations for someone who wants to perform better as a human being. I, I don't mean athletically. I just mean you, you want more of whatever it is you do. What, what matters most? Those three okay. things. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while. <laughs> and uh, all I can tell you are the things that would work for me. And again, you're talking to someone who's got a sugar book that's three years overdue. Um, <laughs> so there's this uh, possibility that when it comes to actually performing better, I really have no clue other than, okay, so get rid of the sugars and the white flour in your diet. That's, yep. that's a, a definite. I think that's going to make anyone healthier, whether they're a vegan or a uh, Carnivore, 100% carnivore. Um, I gotta say, get rid of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a first. I know this is counterproductive for somebody who's got a podcast, but uh, you know, I mean, you think about how much time we waste. Uh, and uh, what's my third is gonna be? Um, it's got to be getting enough sleep. You know, that's that's if I can get seven, eight hours of sleep for five days in a row, I'm an entirely different uh, person. It's interesting. I describe my writing. Uh, it's always been Sisyphusian to me. So basically, you wake up in the morning. When you have a book to write or an article, it's wake up in the morning, push the rock up the hill. Mm -hmm. And then it rolls back down. You wake up the next morning, push the rock up the hill. Eventually, you get it to the top of the hill one day, and then you start editing, and everything's cool, and you begin enjoying life again. I've never been a fan of writing. I love researching. When I don't get enough sleep, I can't push the rock. It's just that simple. It's like you walk around the rock. You put your shoulder against it. You you know, try to take a running head start. It just doesn't move. You get enough sleep, the rock moves. Um, I can't. The question is, often we don't get enough sleep because we're waking up at three in the morning worried about things. Those are the kind of issues that you'd probably be have good advice about. Um, Just wake up to check your email. I, I mean, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so that, that's my advice. Those that, are the three things. That is, uh, it's awesome advice. Yeah. And um, I've got awesome habits and routines. Okay, so you build life. processes for that. Yeah, yeah I, have to, I have to. And I have to be intentional about them otherwise they won't happen. Like, I sleep eight hours. It's just, mm -hmm. I mean, out of 365 days of the year, I'm probably 300 plus eight hours. I force myself, even though, because my mind is often active. So I have to learn to calm my mind and calm my body and play, put myself in that space where it's possible for me to do that. I take care of my nutrition like crazy okay. because I think, you know, your, your fuel tank has to be just optimized. So I'm crazy about my nutrition, but I also do mental breaks throughout the day. 
So the most important, high performance kind of teach the importance of 75 minutes, 90 minute breaks, significant ones. Yeah, that's a big one. You just don't work beyond that. You just go up to that 90 minute mark if you have a lot of mental endurance. A lot of people don't. So it's like, actually take 60 to 75 minutes. All I want you to do, get up, go to the, go to the sink or the filtered water, get some water, drink the whole glass of water, fill it up again, come back, bring it back. Do just two, three minutes of stretching or qigong or cupping or yogic type of work, whatever you need to do, and then go back down. And then I meditate twice a day and I do a combination uh, almost always 20 minutes. Okay, 20 minutes uh, twice a day. Yeah, 20 okay. minutes almost twice a day. Um, I don't always hit, probably 70% of the time I hit twice a day. And there's a YouTube video, I, uh, half a million people I've taught to meditate <laughs> on YouTube. It's called the release meditation technique. It's, it's how I, it's basically mantra based uh, meditation where I close my eyes and I repeat the word release. And my intention going into it is to release uh, physical tension and mental tension. And so releasing things, so just repeating the word release over and over. And if other thoughts or ideas come up, I just come right back to that mantra of release and go, and go with that, sitting still. Sometimes I play a sound or a music in the background, but usually not. Uh, and I think those combination of sleep as the foundation, that combination of great nutrition and meditation. And then I've worked out every other day for almost 19 years. And it's very guilt-free for me because I don't feel like I have to do it, it just every other day I do it. And sometimes it could be as simple as I, just if I'm doing my events and I'm wiped, it'll be a 45 minute walk. Yep. Other times I like a more intense cardio because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of our real longer term um, endurance come from lung capacity. So I'm, I'm enormously grateful to have had the opportunity to interview all these people, to learn from them and to take that knowledge and share it with you. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being one or more of those 20 million downloads. I'm, I'm truly humbled and amazed by this. And I'm more committed than ever towards bringing you the stuff that's going to help you kick the most ass all the time. And uh, I can't believe how far I've come personally from weighing 300 pounds and having brain fog and, and just really a lot of suffering and a lot of wasted effort to where I am now and to have the opportunity to share this kind of stuff with with people all over the world who are losing tons of weight, but more importantly than losing weight, they're getting their brains back and they're getting them back the first week. And they come up to me at the Bulletproof Coffee Shop, which also opened this year, I just realized. And uh, they say, Dave, I, I lost 70 pounds, but then I, the first week I stopped the cravings, I got my brain back and I'm nicer. That's the power everyone has, and that's what Bulletproof Radio is about. All this stuff is about. So thanks for listening. I'm I'm awed and amazed and just couldn't be more grateful. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. 
This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.